Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Because you're talking over the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank Hall of Notes for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. I love doing this show. I love my listeners. If you don't believe me, consider that I'm missing the Tennessee Kentucky game right now in order to in order to record this for you. This is episode 197. Episode 200 is coming up. That's why if you have not done so already, you want to join our Facebook group, Stick to Wrestling. We are doing nothing but taking questions from our listeners for episode 200, which is right around the corner. It is still WrestleMania month, and we are going to discuss what I think is the most important WrestleMania of all time, WrestleMania 3. I can't believe it's about to turn 35 years old, but with that, I want to bring on our guest, very popular guest returning, Brett Nicholas. Brett, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I am doing I'm doing better than usual because I think we finally have fixed the technological problems we've had over the past couple of months with Stick to Wrestling. I think we've finally gotten over those. Brett, WrestleMania took place, WrestleMania 3 took place March 29th, 1987. Where, what was going on with you? Like, who did you watch it with? How did you watch it? Et cetera. Like, what, 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 tell me the whole story. Well, this, this is the, the fun story. I, um, was living in Sacramento at the time. And so I was never in my life, probably as much into wrestling as I was at that point. I lived wrestling. I breathed wrestling. Um, I was 13 years old and wrestling was my life and my parents, did not order pay-per-views. Wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so um, I was sad, went over across the street with my neighbor, and we were sitting there. And if you remember pay-per-view back in the days, a lot of people in them still would have to um, go drive and get one of those boxes, you know, a special box. Well, the cool thing about our cable Sacramento, you didn't need a special box. You just used a regular box. And that was the key. Because we turned on the show, and back then, the first like five minutes or so, they give you for free before they scrambled it. Try and hook you one last time, call up and get it. So yeah. we're sitting there, we're watching the beginning of Morocco and Orton versus Can-Am Connection, and we're just looking at each other, waiting for it to scramble, just waiting. It never scrambled. It just kept going, and we got the whole show for free. And to top it off, I went back over to my house across the street that night, and I watched the replay. And we got that for free, too. They, for some reason, had an issue scrambling it. And I, I can't even begin to tell you how excited I was as a 13-year-old that I got to see this pay-per-view that I never thought I was going to get to see. And I was going to have to wait three months or however long it was to to rent a tape or, you know, see it on Showtime or HBO like they did with WrestleMania 2. And, you know, I, I'm not a religious man, but boy, that day I was. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh man, if, if you're 13 years old and suddenly you, you're not expecting it, you get Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant, like tossed in your lap for free. I, I did. And I, I got Piper Adonis, which actually to me was the, the, the biggest match to me because I was such a Piper fan. And yeah, I got it all. I was I was just beyond thrilled. I, I can't even begin to tell you how, how lucky that made me feel because I 
never thought I was going to get to see it. It would have been the cruelest thing in the world. Like, as you see Andre the Giant coming to the ring, the thing scrambles. <laughs> I would have cried. I probably would have cried. <laughs> you know, eight years isn't that big a deal, like, to you and I right now in terms of age. But, like, obviously, 13, I, I was 21. And I remember the day. It was a, it was March 29th, but it was like a summer day out. It was like 75, 80 degrees, and we're stuck inside watching college basketball and wrestling. And I had my girlfriend over. She stayed over the night before. And, you know, she's dressed for a hot summer day. So my place starts filling up with people. And it was like everyone I invited kind of brought another person or two. So she's stuck at my place with like literally 20 guys breathing down her neck. And she grabs me and she's like, give me the biggest sweatshirt you own. And I'm like, <laughs> you can't possibly be hot. And she's like, I'm the only girl here. What's the matter with you? I'm like, okay. So she comes out, you know, she was once wearing this like tight little t-shirt and a pair of shorts. Now she's got this old raggy Boston Celtics t-shirt that like comes down to her knees and like everyone got the message. It's like, you're bothering Jennifer. And that's why she didn't continue to be your girlfriend. Uh, she did for about another eight months by some miracle. But anyway. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We, at WrestleMania 3, everyone in the industry was surprised that it did as well as it did. It was a legit sellout weeks in advance. And they sold like 75,000 tickets. More on that in a minute. They did something that I thought was smart. They had they were not offering closed circuit in the state of Michigan. No closed circuit and no pay-per-view. So if you were nearby and you wanted to see it, you had to be part of that crowd. Yeah, and, and you know that that was a good idea. And uh, just just to reference one of your uh, oftentimes guests, Chris Tabor was in Pontiac and did not go. By the way, um, but... I remember that. Yeah, but, but, you know, that was a smart move. It, re it really was because, you know, with closed circuit, it was a relatively cheap way to go watch those. And they needed to make sure that this stadium sold out. So what better way than to make sure you just couldn't watch it uh, that way? You know, yeah. it, it was definitely a smart move, I think. Yeah, and they also, on purpose, had it in Michigan, in Detroit, because— um. You can drive there for most of the country, like in less than a day. So that was another one of their smart moves. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even even now, I have driven to shows in Chicago, Cleveland, because I live in Michigan now for, you know, nobody would know that. So I should mention it. So, yeah, you can you can get to a lot of different places. I mean, heck, you can get all the way down to Nashville in a, a day's drive. If you leave early in the morning, you can get down there and see a show that night. So. It is a, a pretty central location to a lot of bigger locations, bigger cities that can get you there to see that show. Yeah, and they, they did that on purpose and they advertised it as such. They said, hey, you know, you can probably drive here. And they sold the place out. Like I said, a lot of people were surprised. But I think a lot of people tended to underestimate what a dream match Hulk Hogan versus a bad guy, Andre the Giant, who is now being managed by Bobby Heenan was. It, it was. And there was a lot of fans like me, you know, nowadays with everybody having access to all the history and all the old matches and everybody's an expert on everything. They don't realize that there were fans like me that started watching, you know, sometime in 84. I don't remember the exact time, but I, you know, after Hogan became champion, 
I had no frame of reference he'd ever been a heel. I had no frame of reference Andre the Giant wasn't undefeated for 15 years. I had no idea Andre the Giant had ever been slammed. I bought everything that they said in this feud, hook, line, and sinker, because I didn't have the history behind that that people can so easily get now. And I think there was a lot of fans like me who came to the WWF with Hogan, and they they also didn't have that history. And that's why Vince felt so comfortable being able to run this angle the way he did with the undefeated, the never been slammed, you know, they've never met before when all of that was bunk. Of course. I had no idea until maybe a couple of months before this event that Andre had in fact been pinned before I knew he lost a match to Jerry Lawler on a count out back in the seventies. But I mean, I bought the myth that Andre had just never been defeated and, and why not? I mean, you know, it's, wrestling in a way is like a movie you know it's self-contained you know if if in this movie andre's undefeated he's undefeated and and that's a that's a great point because i think that's one of the weaknesses of today's wrestling is everybody's bringing in years of knowledge and i think that makes it hard sometimes for the wrestlers the bookers to to work around when you've got everybody who's so smart to everything they don't mean smart and they know you know, they just they, they know it's predetermined or they know, you know, terms like blading or things like that. But just that they know all the de- details from everything. And you've got a book around that. You've got a book in a way that both gives a nudge, nudge, wink, wink to the past, like AEW or Ring of Honor, those styles do. Or you've got a book like WWE where you treat the fans like morons and pretend nothing that happened two months ago happened. And, you know, may, I, I wish there was a happy medium to that, but there doesn't seem to be just because there's so much history available to anybody at the click of a button. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I look back, I, I, of course, I was at, you know, one of the people who made sure everyone around me knew that, yeah, they'd wrestled before. They wrestled in 80, in 80 and 81. They might, I think they wrestled in 78 and 79 too. But I mean, getting a little bit off the subject, like, Vince, you know, not acknowledging that, yeah, they had a feud in the Northeast and they wrestled in Atlanta and New Orleans. Like, that's not a big deal. But years later, in 1994, Eric Bischoff trying to tell us that Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair had never wrestled. That was ridiculous. Oh, yeah, that that was. Uh, that Everyone was, knew. You saw it two years before. I mean, do you if you because I think I think it was safe to say by 92 that even if you weren't reading the Observer Newsletter, that kind of thing, you were at least buying stuff like Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and you saw that Flair wrestled Hogan. So the fans that were still left, because you know a lot of fans had kind of moved on by that point, they, they, they definitely knew. And when you hit 94, those same fans were just going to roll their eyes at the idea that Flair and Hogan hadn't met. Yeah, I mean, by then, the WWF was promoting, you know, coast to coast and it was on national cable. It was on, you know, every syndicated market. And and like I said, I thought that was just way more ridiculous. I watched some of the primetime wrestling uh, available on Peacock today to kind of build up to the show. I thought, you know, okay, this was going to be kind of an infomercial for WrestleMania three. And I mean, I I've used this term frequently. In 1987, wrestling on pay-per-view was still in its infancy because they had not yet figured out to make this thing 
uh, that airs six days before WrestleMania, an infomercial for WrestleMania three. It was like a throwaway show. They had a an update with Gene Okerlund that lasted maybe six or seven minutes, uh, hyping the show, and that was about it. I, I, I think that's crazy. <sighs> Prime time was an odd, odd show. I, I really was loving it as a kid because Sacramento wasn't exactly a big market for WWF to hit a lot. And so it was the only chance I got to see what were considered big matches at the time. You know, Hillbilly Jim versus Bob Orton. That was that was huge for TV back then. You know, this was the pre Nitro oh, yeah. days. And so primetime, even in all those house show matches that they were just showing, th- th- that was a big deal. That was Those were big names fighting big names. But the actual content that sells is, is I've watched quite a bit of it on the uh, Peacock. Uh, they, they really didn't do a great job of pushing storylines on the show. You know, they, they no. Heenan, Heenan and Gorilla were, were great, you know, bantering back and forth and having fun and everything. But there really were a lot of storylines that were running through the house shows that were on the syndicated shows, which you still can't get on Peacock, sadly, for the most part, that that they just weren't showing on primetime. It, it just Vince wasn't as good at tying everything together, the promotional vehicle, as he would get to be later. Yeah, on this show, we had a 15-minute match between S.D. Jones and the Red Demon. And then I didn't even finish watching this one, but they had Jose Luis Rivera against Johnny K-9. <laughs> I mean, I can't make this stuff up. And yeah, you would think that they would have a two-hour, okay, here's why Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant are fighting show. Here's why Harley Race is fighting Junkyard Dog, etc. And nope, 15 minutes of S.D. Jones and the Red Demon. You know, what's funny is I thought I thought Jose Luis Rivera played the Red Demon sometimes. So it's kind of funny. He had two matches there if it was him <laughs> in that S.T. Jones match. But no, it was that was very true. They didn't put in the the hype packages. They did. They they later on obviously became absolutely outstanding at video packages to hype you up for a match to the point where a lot of people can watch none of their regular TV and be kept up to speed just watching video packages on the pay-per-view before the matches. Which is what I currently do. Yeah, there's quite a few people based on Raw's ratings um, that do that. But uh. no, I watch the live events on Peacock as they happen, but I I no longer watch Raw or SmackDown. I just like get caught up right before the big event. It works for me. I don't dislike the current product, but there's just other stuff I would rather watch. You know, I mean, there's always better wrestling, I think available to me than what's on raw or smackdown what can i say anyway (laughs) aretha franklin detroit's own sings the national anthem and actually no she sang america the beautiful and she was brilliant she was absolutely great and having her go out there was a brilliant move i thought oh yeah she's she's beloved and still is i mean i've learned that in michigan um they actually had her back for whatever was it 23 that they came back yeah, 20th anniversary, so 23. She came back and did a song before the show when they came back to Detroit and did the show at Ford Field. But yeah, her and Ray Charles may be my two favorite um, before the show, America the Beautiful, National Anthem versions that WWF has done. 
I can't think of anyone better. And it's one of those moments where I'm like, uh, Jim Crockett Jr., are you watching this? Are you taking notes? Like, this is how it's done. Didn't he have usually some hillbilly country thing going on? Or <laughs> Oh, yeah. He had that. He had penthouse pet of the month. I mean, come on. Uh, but anyway, uh, so Aretha was great. Then we have the Can-Am connection against Don Morocco and Bob Orton Jr., this one stood out to me because this was the first wrestling show I ever saw that there was absolutely no filler. Every match meant something and every match had a big star in it. I would agree with that. I mean, I, you up and down the card, there was nothing that I would say didn't have some uh, appeal. Even, even the, the, um, Volkoff Iron Sheik versus Killer Bees match. Duggan was involved, and of course, Duggan was the patriotic guy versus the Russians. And the other match was the Butch Reed Coco Beware. That one, I'm not sure if there was anything going on around that going into it. That would be the only one I could see not having, you know, backstory, having being a big match. But it also was three and a half minutes, and the fans got to see Tito Santana beat up Slick. So no harm, no foul. They actually did have a little bit of a backstory to that. Uh, on, I think on Wrestling Superstars, Butch Reed was, was beating up a jobber, and Coco Ware uh, came out, got on the top rope, and, and drop-kicked him from the top rope. And I, I was, remember being like, wow, even this match has an ankle coming in. Uh, there you go. There you go. That's so, yeah, I, I don't remember that, but you know, as we get older, we don't remember everything anymore. So No, it, it might not have been on... Uh, superstars. It might have been on Challenge or you know one of those dopey shows. But one thing I have noticed, I've heard through the years that the WWF had big plans for the Can-Am Connection, Rick Martel and Tom Zank. And while I was watching that primetime wrestling earlier today, they were on primetime wrestling and they did a job to demolition. So maybe that talk was a little bit overstated. I kind of think they might have gotten the tag team titles at some point, but the Hart Foundation had just gotten the tag team titles, so you just can't bounce them around too much. Yeah, I think the assumption was always because Strike Force got the titles eventually that that was going to be the Martel Zinc spot as Can Am connection, but I don't know that it was any deeper deeper than that. I've not uh, in my readings over the years going back heard anything definitive that they were in line for anything. As you said, Hart Foundation had just got the belt, so. If it was anything, it was something long term where they simply were going to be strike force and it was months off and things could have changed anyways. No, I, I actually think they had, you know, for for a team in the tag team division, I still kind of think they had big plans for them. And as a matter of fact, the more I'm thinking about this, a lot of the time in the WWF around this era, if a team was about to win the tag team titles, they did a bunch of jobs around the horn. So. I've had like two hours to think this through, and that's all I have. <laughs> but they, they, Vince Lottie had his, had his version of the Rock and Roll Express here. Yeah, I mean, they were a, a fun team. I mean, they were a good opener, get the crowd hot. You know, everybody, good-looking guys fighting against two very long-term known heels who could both work uh, at a high level in Morocco and Orton. Um, so it was an easy, good way to to start and get the crowd into it. I always thought it was funny, though, that Zinc, he left shortly after this. And he was one of the few people that 
disappeared. Normally they would just appear and you'd be like, oh, I haven't seen that guy in a few months. They buried Zink on TV. So he must have really irritated Vince with uh, bailing on him because it was it was not normal for them to bury somebody on TV like Watts used to do. Yeah. Usually the WWF would not even acknowledge you if you just quit or wasn't on TV anymore. But, you know, they made it sound like uh, Zank was a coward who ran away, quite, quite frankly. Exactly. That's it. Called him a quitter, a coward, had Martel out there, bad mouth him. Tito joined in bad mouthing him. It was it was rough for the WWF. Brent, I don't know if you ever heard Tom Zank on Dave Meltzer's old Iata show, but Zank. He became almost too frequent a a guest, but when he was on for the first time, it was really interesting, and I I really disagreed with what he was saying. He was saying that um, Rick Martel would go up to Vince McMahon and say, "Hey, you know, I've got this idea. I've got this kid who can, you know, really make a good tag team with me." And he made it sound like Rick Martel was almost using him when, in fact, and I remember listening to it at the time. I'm like. Tom, Rick Martell recommending you to Vince McMahon as your tag team partner is a break that a lot of wrestlers are never going to see. Yeah, that's some weird logic on that. I mean, Martell was a former world champion, a former tag team champion in back in the day before Vince Jr. took over, I believe. I think it was Vince Sr. time. That That's a really odd thing. It's it's weird to for him to be bitter about such a great opportunity it's and it's not like they weren't getting a push when he left either i mean they were getting a getting a big push i i I don't understand why someone would be resentful of that martel's one of the guys that could get in vince's ear and vince would listen because he was a veteran in the business with a lot of accomplishments one thing while researching this show that surprised me was at this time, Rick Martel was still only 31 years old. So he had a long, theoretically, he had a long way to go in this business. Tom Zank was resentful when he learned that Rick Martel was making more money than him. And Zank felt like, you know, hey, we're in the same spot. We should be getting the same amount of money. And my response to that was, Tom, you're a guy who was a middle of the card guy in the AWA before you got here. And you got a little bit of a push in Montreal, but that's it. He's Rick Martel. I mean, just get it through your head, man. Like you're not at his level yet. Yeah, this is not how the business works. You're some guys make more money than the others. You just, you want to make more money, earn it. Yeah, exactly. And it, kind of a contrast here. You've got Morocco and Orton uh, who have been in the WWF now for, or Orton's been there for three years. Morocco's been there for two consecutive years. They are getting really stale. And by the way, the first thing I noticed about Morocco, he looks like the Michelin man out there. He is roided to the gills. This is that's yeah, this is where he started doing that. And um, I looked this up because I was curious about when it did take and Morocco's face turn happened in July, um, turned on Orton or Orton turned on him. And I mean, he just got bigger and bigger by the week. and. He did his angle with superstar Billy Graham, where he Graham was managing him. He was called The Rock, which is really jarring when you watch old programming to hear him referred to as The Rock over and over again. Oh, yeah. And, and and you know, I didn't realize how quickly he was gone. But then again, there was a big, huge purge over um, 
1988 and into 89 a little bit of almost any of the older guys. And Morocco was turned face in July, and he was gone by the fall of 88. It was only about a year run. Yeah, Morocco, I mean, even turning him babyface, you know, he's still what he is. And supposedly there was some problem. They had a European tour fall in 1988. And supposedly there was an incident on that tour uh, where Morocco, Orton, and a couple of other guys were showing the door. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, he, Orton, who else was out of there? That I'm trying to remember. There's a couple other guys. Patera was out JYD. of there. JYD. Yeah, several several of those older guys all got moved out. And, and, and to be honest, um, that's the point where WWF, as they pushed Warrior more, as they pushed Duggan more, Zeus came in in 89. That's the point where it became too cartoonish for me. I know there's some traditionalists who always found Hogan and the Vince McMahon WWF too cartoonish, but I loved it up until around 89 or so. Part of it was being in high school. You got things to do. You got sports, you got girls, you got friends, but the push for warrior, the the emphasis on Zeus on Duggan, who I found just a joke. Um, <laughs> I was, I was not into the uh, not, not thinking patriotism of his character. It just became too cartoonish for me, and I kind of pulled away from it from that. And that was after that big purge of a lot of the guys who were the workhorses going from that period where Hogan came in, WrestleMania 1, up through WrestleMania 4. No, make no mistake, there were cartoonish elements of the WWF, you know, I mean, from the day Hogan arrived. But in 1989, they, they really stepped on the gas on that. I mean, they went that extra step in, in more ways than one. This was a good match. Not a great match, but it was a good opener. Zank and Martell seemed like they were going to be a really good team, not only in terms of, hey, look, the girls are going to like these guys, but Martell is an absolutely splendid worker, uh, and Zank could keep up with him. Yeah, I mean, it was, they they fit what WWF was looking for for a hot babyface team. When you looked at some of the other teams like the Killer Bees or... You know, the Rougeaus, they didn't have that same appeal to, you know, women, if you will. They're, they didn't have that Rock and Roll Express, which I never understood because Ricky Morton is not an attractive man. But um, the girls loved them in ways that they the, killer bees, the Killer Bees, the Rougeaus, some of these other babyface teams were not catching on. And Martel and Sink had that. Yeah. And like I said, I was, you know, not, not surprised. Or put, well, let me put it this way. I was surprised at everything that happened. We'll talk more about that as the show goes on. Next match, Billy Jack Haynes against Hercules Hernandez. And as as I see Billy Jack Haynes coming to the ring, a thought goes through my head. Can you imagine right now being Billy Jack Haynes or anyone from the show who is still with us and being like, wow, I was part of WrestleMania 3. Like Billy Jack must be just like every day, just like, all right. You know, life has its ups and downs, but I was part of WrestleMania three. I had a match there. He probably thinks that in between the weird conspiracy theories he has, but uh, yeah, being a part He's got of time, it, plenty of time. <laughs> being a part of it has to have been spectacular. I mean, 85, 90, whatever you want to call the attendance, thousand people and having a place on the card. And in his case, not not a a prominent prominent match, but he had a good solid angle that continued on on the house show circuit, 
And he got one of the absolute rare blade jobs that you saw in WWF at that time. It was rare at this time, and the WWF was about to go full-blown into no-you-can't-use-it-ever mode. I think right around summer of 87 is when they actually banned it. Billy Jack Haynes, three years ago, looked like he was going to be a superstar in the business. Like, maybe not a Hogan level, but a big star. They had big plans for him. And now, three years later, after he quits multiple promotions, he returns to the WWF in 1986, but he's just another guy. I mean, this is his ceiling. Yeah, no, he just he wasn't reliable. He had the physique WWF was looking at. Wasn't a great promo, but at that point, as a baby face, you could kind of get away with the ah shucks type of promo that you, you can't or couldn't years later. But no, he was never going to be anybody he he wasn't even going to be the level of a, a Hulk Hogan friend um you know I mean I've said this on the show before like he was supposed to get a big push in JCP the beginning of 1986 he was going to come in win the TV title and be the number three guy behind Dusty and Magnum and I don't know what happened but that never took place but that seemed to be like his last hurrah as far as okay this guy's going to be a big star yeah, I mean, you you keep burning promoters, you keep getting a reputation for being trouble and not being reliable. Even somebody like JYD, who was over as much as anybody not him, Hogan, even when he came in WWF that first year, you're just going to lose that spot because the promoter's not going to want to deal with it. Most of all, Vince McMahon, who had a whole bunch of other bullets and his gun when it came to pushing somebody else. Yeah, he he initially in the WWF was going to get a, a big push in 1984 before they even put him on TV. He was on the cover of one of their programs. And like I said, it just didn't happen. Another guy who I thought could have had a, a bigger career was Hercules Hernandez. I mean, when he was in Mid-South in 1984, I was like, whoa, you know, this guy easily could come in and have a big program against Hulk Hogan or maybe be one of the big bad guys in WCW. And it, he had a role when he came in in 86, but he was never really even close to being a top guy, which I thought maybe he could have been. Yeah. I, he's one of those guys, this time years, color, your remembrances of who was who that when I go back and watch stuff, I'm kind of surprised at how he wasn't that big of a deal almost from day one when he came in. Now, it took him a couple, about three years. Once he turned face off the DiBiase buying him as a slave angle, he did get to be Hogan's buddy for a few months. And I'm sure that earned him some big paydays. And that's probably his peak in WWF. But I always, he's one of those guys where you always remember him as being a bigger deal than he was. And then I go back and watch the prime times and I watch the old, uh, house shows and and whatnot and he really wasn't he 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 just never was more than a mid card or never hit that upper card level or was beating any of the big names no super nice guy outside the ring but it just never came together for him and i, I remember getting the phone call from someone who went to one of the tv tapings where ted dibiase tried to buy him as his slave and i'm like ted dibiase tried to do what this company's crazy 
that was that cartoonish aspect that it was getting into. I mean, don't get me wrong. Nobody be the million dollar man like Ted DiBiase. That guy just threw himself into that role and owned it. But I would also argue that Ted DiBiase and that whole thing was so over the top. It was definitely a point of pushing towards that cartoonish area. Yeah, I mean, Hercules by that point was kind of stale as a heel and they needed to do something with him. And I I guess reading with DiBiase, this was a slow big man match, but I did not think it was a bad match at all. I mean, it was like, and this is a common theme in in WrestleMania. They had to do uh, 12 matches, excuse me, in less than three hours with an intermission thrown in. So I thought for the most part, they were smart in keeping the matches short. And thus, they were fast-paced. Like, this was nowhere near as bad as I I thought it was going to be. I didn't, you know, I didn't really think there was a bad match on the show. Not in the the way we think of bad matches. They were just, they were short. They, and they did what they were supposed to do. It was, it was almost a master's class in how characters and angles mattered and how that was what was important. And you got your five minutes to get a, Cross your character, your angle, and get out of the ring. And let's be honest, there's probably not more than a handful of pay-per-views in the last 20 years that, from a work rates perspective, aren't better than WrestleMania 3. And yet, WrestleMania 3 is the show I've watched the most number of times. The show that if I just feel like it every couple months, I'll toss on. Because there, there was just something about it that just entertains me every time. It was a spectacular event, and you know we'll we'll get more into that later. Next, we have King Kong Bundy, and I'm I'm so careful and even write the midgets' names against Hillbilly Jim and two midgets. The ultimate throwaway match, throwaway comedy match. Yeah, here though is I want to mention Bob Euchre because this was a much less celebrity heavy event than WrestleMania one or two had been, especially WrestleMania two with just Good point. some of the most garbage celebrities you've ever seen, like Herb from the Burger King commercials and Clara, the Where's the Beef Lady. I hope Vince got paid by Wendy's and Burger King for that, by the way. But um, <laughs> anyways, all they had on this celebrity-wise was Bob Uecker, Mary Hart, and then Alice Cooper later in seconding um, Jake Roberts. I can I will say to this day that Bob Uecker could have been a regular WWF announcer. He was that good. I, I thought he did a really good job on the show, and so did Mary Hart. I mean, you're right. They had a lot fewer celebrities, but these were two well-known quality celebrities. So so good point. I thought they did a great storyline with this match where King Kong Bundy tries to literally squash the midgets, and all four midgets who are, you know, in they're supposed to be fighting each other, but they band together to stop the evil King Kong Bundy. I did like that. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a fun comedy match. Um, and it was kind of sad that Bundy had fallen so far from WrestleMania too, but it was it was it it served its purpose. Hillbilly Jim got on the show, which everybody loved to see him and cheer him. And back at the time, man, did Vince love his midgets? Or are we supposed to call them little people now? I don't know. They called them midget matches, but uh, Vince I just call them whatever they're stuff. called. Vince Vince just loved that stuff and you know so he got on there it was a, it was good fun I mean that's that's all you can say about it it was good, it was good fun 
Yeah, I mean, if, if it's the worst thing on the card, then it's, it's not the worst thing in the world. All right, Harley Race versus Junkyard Dog. I have always been a big Harley Race fan, but man, was he, in my opinion, out of place in the WWF. I mean, he just didn't have the physique. He had that silly blonde hair. It, it, he just didn't fit, in my opinion. Yet, in the summer of 87, he got uh, he got to go around the horn against Hogan and make a lot of money. Yeah, I didn't, I, you know, again, I was 13. I didn't have the background on Harley Race. I'd seen his name in the magazines and and, and that sort of thing. But when he came in, I, I was just, I, and it, it's a good, it's a, a good example of how people look so much older at a younger age back then. I mean, you oh, look yeah. at some of these guys like Edge, who's, I mean, what is Edge now, 48 or something? I, he looks amazing. Uh, you know, Harley back then was like 40 and he looked like he was 60. All that cigarettes and hard living, I guess. But yeah, he he just never. They told me he was a star. They told me he was the king, but he just never came across to me as a kid, as as somebody who had the look. You know, I I was a big sucker for the the big shiny toys. You know, even though guys like Tony Atlas um, weren't all that great in WWF, I thought Tony that was was spectacular because he had a look. And I, I thought he was he was great, and I didn't understand why he didn't win more. And Harley Race did not have that look at all. And um, I'm kind of surprised they even gave him a run with Hogan in the summer of '87 because he he wasn't getting over with the crowd as a heel like you would think was needed for that position, especially because Hogan, outside of you know Savage, maybe a Morocco or '84, most of the time he was always working with the big guys, you know, the monster heels and race was absolutely not that. And I would argue he really didn't deserve the spot. I wonder if it was something that was promised when he signed on. Uh, I, I doubt it because Vince McMahon was famous for, you know, I'm not making any promises here. Just sign the contract. Um, I think they, and I want to emphasize, they didn't just go around the horn, like, you know, New York, Boston, et cetera, with race versus Hogan. They had rematches, so you had two Harley Race versus Hulk Hogan matches, two of which I saw in Boston, and at the time I wasn't thrilled, but now, 35 years later, I can say, wow, I saw Hulk Hogan versus Harley Race twice, so I'm happy about that. Yeah, I mean, Harley, I mean, there's, there, he's a legend. He's a legend. It wasn't, while they were trying to keep Andre and Hogan apart, it wasn't exactly a murderer's row of people that Hogan was working with. It was Harley Race. It was Killer Khan. It was One Man Gang. That was pretty much his 1987. With yes. you know a sprinkle of tag matches here and there. A spring, I think Savage may have got a couple one shots, but it was not a banner year. It was you're here to see Hulk Hogan. His opponent was almost meaningless. Yeah, I actually looked looked it up before we went on, and what you said was 100 percent correct. It was mostly Harley race, a couple of Randy Savages, a couple of one man gangs and like towards the fall killer con. And by the way, just as an aside, I saw a match in Boston, Hulk Hogan versus killer con. It was really good to my surprise. Uh, yeah, Nick, I mean, if you Hogan knew how to work the formula, in, in fact, I would, I would argue that the Andre feud was the point where he stopped doing anything but the formula. Like if you watch '84 Hogan, he's a completely different worker. He did a he lot is. of different things. I I absolutely adore 1984 Hogan. 
Now, 1987 and on Hogan, I find boring. You know, he he settled into that formula that the fans love. And, you know, it made him a whole lot of money. It made WWF a whole lot of money. But as somebody who likes a little bit of variety and is a little more work rate, uh, of a work rate fan than I am, it just didn't work that much for me after that. But, yeah, he, he fell into that formula. And Killer Khan absolutely was a guy that worked well in that formula. He did. Um, yeah, I, I'm looking at my notes here, and I, I just think that, or I noticed that four years earlier, Harley Race versus Junkyard Dog would have been for the NWA Championship. It would have taken place. You would have filled the Houston Summit or maybe even the New Orleans Superdome with that match. And now it's just the third match on WrestleMania. And I, I, I mentioned that Harley Race didn't exactly have the standard wwf physique junkyard dog is in sad shape here he really is and i mean more than anything i felt bad for the guy yeah and and if i was i was a kid i I was a big fan of junkyard dog i didn't even have the mid-south background to know anything about him just he came into wwf and i thought the guy was awesome you know he had that charisma he just uh, appealed to me but he just he got so out of shape. And then I don't know what he was thinking, shaving his beard. He looked terrible with just the mustache. And, yeah. um, you know, and it was just uh, it, it, this match. It was OK. It might have been the weakest match on the card. Now that I think of it, it was kind of a, a lazy distraction finisher. It didn't particularly look good. And JYD came across as a sore loser. He did. Uh, I mean, he lost. I've never this is this is an aside on wrestling in in general i've never been a fan of the manager gets on the apron and the face goes and runs after him because to me when they then lose that's on them for being a moron (laughs) nobody says that you have to the, the manager hasn't hit you they haven't thrown anything at you nobody says you have to go get them on the apron concentrate on your match if they get in the ring then worry about it you know they 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 constantly do that they know it's an easy out for them to do finishes. So I, I I get it. I just always thought it made the face look dumb. It made the face look dumb. It's like the baby face would forget that, oh, I have this 250-pound man that I'm turning my back to, and he seems like not a very, very good person. But anyway, and you're right, JYD came out, came across as a complete sore loser here. And, you know, I, I there were rumors that Junkyard Dog was on his way out of the WWF. Turned out it wasn't true. He would be there for another year. But I, I do know that the WWF had a was putting a best of Junkyard Dog uh, videotape through Coliseum Video, and they stopped production on it. So JYD was, you know, seemingly no longer in anyone's good graces, which is sad. Oh yeah, because I, I was such a big fan of his, but. As I understand it, he had a lot of personal demons in the same way that Jake Roberts had personal demons over the years. So, and that was impacting it big time. He went from arguably the, I would say he was number two face in the company after Hogan in 85 to just an afterthought after this WrestleMania. And he was nothing but card filler. He was definitely the number two in 1985. And you're right, you know, he it just went down, went south very quickly. All right, next up, it's the Rujos against Greg Valentine and Brutus Beefcake with Dino Bravo in their corner. Now, Dino Bravo, this was a a stunner to me that they were turning Dino Bravo heel. He had been a babyface, as far as I know, 
for his entire career, which goes back about 15 years. And he comes out with this ridiculous platinum blonde hair. I mean, I just was not, you know, by 1989, I was used to it. But like, it was jarring for me. He was also so big in the upper body, he could barely move or do anything. Much like Morocco, he he went so over the top with the uh, artificial enhancement that uh, he just wasn't able to to do a lot of stuff to make a match look decent. Yeah, and you know what, Brett? I want you to know this. Like, I like the fact that you're talking from the perspective of someone who was 13 years old uh, when you watched this show. I mean, I obviously looked at it from a different perspective. I had been a fan for over 10 years. I was 21. So, I mean, we're looking at this through two different sets of eyes, which I think is good. Yeah, I mean, that's that that's the fun of it. I was the type of fan that WWF was absolutely going for and picking up at an insane speed at, at that time period. I was I was the target audience for the most part. I just think that at a certain point, a couple of years later, they kind of overdid that. But for a time, there was there was not a cooler thing in the world to watch than wrestling for a 13 year old. No, I, I, I've been there. I mean, I was 13 in what, 1979 and you know, yeah, I, I loved it. I, I ate it up. But anyway, during this match, now the, we, the Brutus beefcake was about to go on, had already started the day before kind of an interesting journey. They had a six man tag team match with, uh, it was Valentine beefcake and Adrian Adonis in a six man tag against someone and Adonis stupidly and haphazardly quote-unquote accidentally cuts a lot of Brutus Beefcake's hair and I had no idea where they were going with that uh, other than I guess to make Adrian Adonis look kind of dumb but here we have this match and it's a good enough match Valentine and Beefcake had been together for two years and they're getting stale they win the match and then the heels leave without Brutus Beefcake Bravo Johnny Valiant and Valentine, without even seemingly having an argument or a reason, just ditch Brutus Beefcake. I didn't get it. I, yeah, it seemed odd at the time, but that's it, I liked the fact because I looked up when that because I was looking. I was like, oh, when when did they set up this Beefcake thing? They actually uh, taped that Adonis cutting his hair angle on February sixteenth, which I thought shows how that long-term booking was going on back then that you don't get today where they, they had this all plotted out. They, they had this happening. They were taped it on February 16th, knowing that they were going to do this with this match. And then the next match with Piper, they were going to do this. It was very much the planned out booking that WWF used to shine with and that they don't anymore or haven't for many years, I would argue. So that, that that was neat that it paid it off so quickly. I did get a kick out of how short Beefcake's hair, though, was, relatively speaking, because if you saw his mullet as he entered into, like, 91, 92, it was frightening. Oh, he had crazy hair back in the early 90s. I mean, even in the early 90s, reporting the TV and saying, wow, that's crazy hair. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there watching this and going, okay, they cannot turn a guy named Brutus Beefcake into a babyface can they? And they pulled it off. I mean, he he was the number two behind Hogan there for a good year-long period. I know, obviously, he was buddies with Hogan, and that had its benefits. But he he got pretty darn good in the ring 
um, near the end before he had his parasailing accident. He really was was pretty decent. He he had gotten to the point where he wasn't bad and he got over. I will give him all the credit in the world. Um, at the time he had the accident, they were going to put the Intercontinental Championship on him. That was that. I mean, that cemented that was going to happen. Yeah, yeah that that was a that was a, a real shame that that happened to him. And he never was the same afterwards. I mean, they had him do the interview thing with the barber shop while he healed up and. Then he had that match with uh, at WrestleMania nine with Hogan the tag match, and eventually went WCW. He even got a main event out of it, I think, at Starcade '94. But his his ring work deteriorated badly after he came back from his accident. That accident was horrendous. He got hit in the face with someone's knees so hard that both of their knees were crushed. So you can imagine what what Beefcake's face was like. I mean. There was a time I, I'm pretty sure like he was in he I don't know if he was in critical condition or in ICU, but I think there was a time where, where they were like, OK, this guy might not survive this. Yeah, I mean, like his whole face was crushed. They said like his eyeballs had popped out. It was it was nasty. Yeah. And at the time they were saying he was never going to get back to, into the ring again. Forget it. And good for him. He did get back in the ring. The next match is a big one. It is the hair match between Roddy Piper and Adrian Adonis. Roddy Piper is retiring, allegedly, after the show. He's going to star in a John Carpenter film named They Live. And, uh, I mean, even at the time, I'm like, wow, he's getting the, the a starring role in a John Carpenter movie. So good for him. Brent, have you seen They Live? And if so, what did you think of it? You know, as big as a Piper fan is, I have not. That's the one with the sunglasses and he can see that everybody's aliens, right? Yes, it is. Brent, I, I know you reasonably well for someone who I just know on the Internet. You would love this movie. <laughs> All right. I'll put it on the bucket list. I will have to watch They Live. <laughs> okay, I just never it, got around to it. It's a good movie and it is more poignant in 2022 than it was in 1989. Uh, gotcha. But I, I get even, you're going with that. <laughs> okay. But even when I saw it in the theater in 1979, I liked it. And Roddy Piper was good in the movie, but he was good at being Roddy Piper in the movie. In other words, it's like you put, took if it's like you took Roddy Piper off the set of Piper's pit and put him in a movie. And it's like, that's not going to, that's going to work once. And that's kind of what happened. Yeah, he 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 lasted a couple of years with the movie career and then he came back. But this this was the match. I know Andre Hogan was the big deal and I certainly was into that as well. But this actually because I was such a huge Piper fan, this was the match I was most excited for. Piper's when he destroyed the flower shop with that bat. To this day if I watch that segment, I get goosebumps. I don't know that you can convey his character and his rage and what he was all about better than that one little segment where he's fallen because his knee's bad and he's, he's swinging the bat and he's screaming and he's the war has just begun. I mean, it is one of my top 10 all time favorite moments matches anything in wrestling. I mean, the whole time they had Roddy Piper in the WWF, I knew at some point he was going to turn babyface, and I, I was looking forward to it. And it, it didn't get over as big as I, I thought they would. And I, for years, I was saying that, you know, yeah, Piper, they 
seemed to go out of their way to make sure that he only got to a certain point. And then someone pointed out to me, it's like, well, he's leaving to do a movie. You can only do so much with him. Yeah, I mean, he he came back um, from he did the Mr. T boxing match and he kind of came back and he started trending towards face. And he I think it was August ish, which he actually officially turned face. And so there wasn't that much time between there. And then also during that period of time, you had Adonis kind of bailing out for a couple of months where so Piper was sticking with feuding with Morocco and Orton, who were acting as Adonis's henchmen at the time. And then Adonis popped back in and they got back to that that feud. But, yeah, I think I I think um, him deciding to go to the movies obviously was going to limit how much they pushed him on that. But it did make sense to when he turned face to have this flower shop versus Piper's pit feud. I mean, that that was absolutely 100 percent logical. Yeah, I at the time I'm like, oh man, they're going with you know Adonis, who you know they got gave him such a big push in 1986, and I love Adrian Adonis, but it didn't get over. Then you've got Morocco, who's a little bit overweight and he's he's stale, and Orton is also stale. So you know, like I said, I was always hoping that they would have a bigger feud for Piper, like Randy Savage or someone like that. But now I understand why they didn't do it. Brent, it was the 80s, and someone in the front row has a giant AIDS Adonis poster. Which is, uh, I believe, blurred out on the Peacock version, but is um, available on my WrestleMania DVD set version to see in all its glory. Yeah, that it, it was a problem. When you look at it now, it was a very problematic angle. And there's a small part of me that feels bad for being so into it, but it's a very small part. Piper said some stuff that is simply not, it wasn't correct then, to be honest. I mean, I was 13, I didn't know any better. But, you know, saying things like, I have a family, you know, like he doesn't want his family to see it on. Even in 87, that kind of wasn't cool. No, it wasn't. And we talk a lot about on the show about, you know, stuff they did in the 80s. And you'd be like, you know, people would be like, oh, wow, the people in the 80s, were they really entertained by this? As a matter of fact, we'll talk more about this as the show goes on. And my answer is always like, you know, the people I surround myself with that are, I, I, I'm not even, not even that just the average person kind of rolls their eyes and says, Oh God, what is this? When, when you see a sign like that. Yeah. And it's, it's not something that, that went away either. I was watching an ECW show from 1995 and there was a sign that they had blurred out on Peacock aim towards Richard. So being the person I did, I had to Google and find out what it was. And it was similar type of stuff. So even in 95, you had some fans that were not exactly being uh, anywhere near what would be termed politically correct in the uh, area of gay folks or people that are effeminate in case of Richards. (laughs) So I don't even want to talk about the chant. I saw Tracy Smothers leading the crowd in, and I believe it was in Knoxville, aimed towards Chris Candido. You can only imagine, but thankfully times have changed. I noticed for the first time watching this again, at the end, after Adonis gets his head shaved, oh, I got to throw this in too, Brutus Beefcake comes out, and he's now a baby face, and he shaves Adrian Adonis's head while Roddy Piper keeps Jimmy Hart from interfering by putting his foot on him. So 
Brutus Beefcake is now officially a babyface, and it's been a wild 24-ish hours for him. Yeah, I mean, that was a that was a great way to turn. Now he's got a whole gimmick, which he absolutely ran with and made huge. It helped that guys were willing to take the extra uh, pay they got for getting their head shaved when he uh, would wrestle them. But, uh, yeah, even the... I, I did notice, though, that uh, the clippers that they used weren't exactly the best. He seemed to be struggling to get the hair shaved off a little bit, and he they, ended up only doing half the job. No, I mean, barely half the job. I mean, here's what happens. I mean, you're in the match, you're all sweaty, and clippers don't work well on hair when it's wet. It's pretty much that uh, simple. Good point, and yeah. yeah. Promoters just never figured that out. But anyway, so I, I remember saying... This guy is never going to get over as a baby face. The guy calls himself Brutus Beefcake. The joke is that he's from San Francisco. Ho, ho, we, we know what that means in wrestling. And like we, we said earlier, give the guy credit, it got over. You know what I think it is? I think they saw that Jake got over as a baby face who threw a snake on people. So why not have a baby face that cut the heel's hair? I think there was an absolute copycat quality to that. and. They, they saw the this way where the heel got their comeuppance and they could do the exact same thing with Brutus Beefcake. Now, when he would do it to some of the jobbers on TV, that was a little little wrong. But when he would do it to somebody like Jimmy Hart or, you know, somebody like that crowd was all over there. Yeah. So I, I think it very much they saw how it was working with Jake Roberts and they said, well, we can do it in this way, too. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would think. To some people, you know, okay, Bruce Beefcake, he's a good, he's a good guy. This guy just showed up to wrestle, trying to get his foot in the door in the business, and Brutus Beefcake puts him to sleep and cuts his hair for no reason. I mean, it's different, like you said, when he a uh, couple of months into this, he shaves Johnny Valiant's hair. Oh, that's that's good, but like you know, this guy who just shows up to wrestle and loses, like gets his head shaved, but oh well. Yeah, I, I mean, it was a different time. That's the kind of stuff in the 80s you just accepted. And then in the 90s, we all started questioning, going, how can he be a baby face? And then we'd boo him. But uh, man, Steve Austin. Yeah, well, that's that's true. There, There's a guy the who Rock. didn't do a baby face thing in his life, and somehow he got nothing but cheers as uh, Stone Cold. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, The Rock was a big mouth bully. Steve Austin was just this evil guy who who did things that he shouldn't have done, and it all got over. So maybe that speaks more about us than anything. But anyway, so we think we've seen the last of Roddy Piper. He goes out in a blaze of glory. I was always a big fan of Roddy Piper, Brent. How about you? Oh, yeah. Piper was probably my absolute favorite at that point. Oh, you um, mentioned that. Yeah, I loved him the whole time. Saw some stuff later in his career that kind of made me sad, you know, to see him at that stage. His his promos became a little try hard, if that term means anything to you. He just seemed like he was trying to stick pop culture references that weren't particularly cool. And they just, it wasn't the 80s Piper where the guy was just the best on the mic. And so I I, I try and remember his, his peak years. Um watching his old stuff in Mid-Atlantic, watching his uh, early WWF stuff. That's that's where he was absolutely his best. Yeah, I agree. When he got to the WWF in 84, he was great. And then I remember, like, in 85, watching a Piper's Pit and going, man, this guy, you know, he's tired of what he's doing. This is getting old with him. But anyway, 
It's WrestleMania three. There's a lot to talk about, and we will finish this conversation next week on Stick to Wrestling. Uh, so this is going to be a two-parter. We weren't sure coming in, but we've got two hours of excellent material to go over. I want to thank Brett Nicholas, our guest, for doing such a good job. He'll be back next week. I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this opportunity and forum to have my own pro wrestling talk show. And I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all of the great work he does behind the scenes. The show would not be anywhere near as good as it is without Lou. We'll see you next week. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols! This concludes our podcast day. 